When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Andrew. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss our incoming political editor, Andrew Marr's cover story about why Boris Johnson is beyond saving. On today's New Statesman podcast, I'm very excited to be joined by our incoming political editor, Andrew Marr, for his debut appearance. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you. It's very exciting indeed. Anush, and I'm delighted to be here. Well, I, I mean, I'm, there's so much to talk about. But first of all, before we start talking about your cover story in the current uh, issue, um, I wanted to ask you a bit about what your plans are as political editor of The New Statesman. I mean, you wrote a diary for us saying that you wanted to go back to having that dog-eared notebook in your pocket, cheap pens leaking on your shirts. And your plan really is to be back in the thick of the lobby, isn't it? It certainly is. I'm going to be down at Westminster most days of the week during term time. I'm also going to be doing an LBC political magazine program, I guess, uh, at the beginning of the week in the evenings. Um, so I'm there for that as well. Uh, but it means that I will be hovering around the lobbies, the corridors, the coffee bars, and indeed the bar bars uh, all the time. So I want to bring a sense of, as it were, kind of the smell of the street and what people are really saying and a pretty sort of vivid, immediate aspect to our reporting. Beyond that, you know, the New Statesman, as you know, has a fantastic team of political journalists and reporters. And I want to use the fact that I've been on that kind of beat for, I'm afraid to say, more than 40 years, one way or another, to bring that experience to bear, to help them and to help the New Statesman get the very, very best stories we can, because I think we need to break lots of stories as well as be known for our good writing and our good analysis. Mm, yeah, I'm looking forward to it and seeing you peppering the Prime Minister's spokesperson with questions, if indeed they manage to recruit one. <laughs> indeed. There's almost nobody left in number 10 except the cat, I think. The cat is Harry. And the cat oh, yeah. is considering its position. The cat's considering its position. It's probably how Boris likes it, of course. <laughs> Before we talk about the substance of your cover story, I just wondered how you felt writing it. It must have been quite nerve wracking because this is sort of Andrew Marr unleashed after decades of public impartiality. It was a little bit uh, worrying because, you know, I, I used to write lots and lots of columns in the old days, but it's been a very long time and I've had my own voice back completely. And the question of how hard did I go? What exactly should I be saying so quickly? I think in a way it was made easier for me by the crisis that we're going through at the moment, because, you know, you can hedge 
and be cautious about all sorts of things in public life. But right now, you have to take a position on Johnson. There is no ifs or Mm. buts. Um, Should he go or should he not? I think any respectable commentator, shorn of the the quite right shackles of BBC impartiality, can't dodge that one. And I had an extraordinary kind of personal epiphany. Uh, It's funny how journalism works. You know, I've been reporting and uh, watching the comments of lots and lots of people outraged by the Downing Street parties because they had had to cancel a wedding or they hadn't been able to have a proper funeral or whatever it might be. And one of the things that happened to me last year was that I lost my very, very lovely father and we had to bury him. And I suddenly realized, of course, I was one of those people. And I hadn't quite clocked that before, which seems weird. But as I was sitting in Jack Dromey's funeral services and Margaret's, I suddenly realized that those first Downing Street parties in 2020 happened at exactly the same time as I was burying my dad outside the church where he had been an elder, Church of Scotland, for 56 years, not able to open the church. And I suddenly find myself reacting first with sadness and then with increasing anger, bubbling up to near fury, as so many millions of other people I had been reporting on had before. But somehow I had never put two and two together and made four. It was very weird. Yes, and and it's very moving in the piece. There is a restrained fury when you're describing sort of how your dad's funeral mm. played out. You standing outside in the churchyard in the wind with very few of you, and you know, I personally can can feel how how enraging that must have been. You know, uh, yeah. my father's funeral in 2018 was one of probably the most comforting days that we had in that time because there were so many people able to attend. So I can only imagine yeah. how that must have felt. Well, my dad, who was a lifelong rule taker, always obeyed the rules, was Mm. always a kind of thoroughly decent guy, deserved a much, much better, more generous, bigger send off than he got. He deserved to have all the people from the village we come from that were friends of his, lots and lots of people, uh, his friends from business and sport and golf and uh, family friends and a wider family, all the grandchildren as well as the children there as well. And none of that happened. And none of that happened for good reasons, because it was right to obey the rules. We all understood how dangerous the pandemic was. And most people in this country, I think, do obey the rules. It's still a very law-abiding, decent, if you like, biddable country, which occasionally erupts into outrage. And so it it really brought it home to me. And the fact that that happened on the first day of my employment by the New States and was just, as it were, in terms of writing the column, a strange dark kind of luck. Yes. And as you say, so it, it was the same for so many millions who have similar stories or worse ones as well. I was going to say, Andrew Marr's story doesn't matter at all, except for the fact that it chimes with so many millions of others. Yes, absolutely. And um, on the cover, if our listeners haven't seen it, it's very striking. It's Boris Johnson on a life ring and the uh, the headline is going under and you conclude that he's beyond saving. How did you come to that conclusion? Well. Almost by sort of semi-mathematical analysis, looking at not the numbers of MPs or letters or anything like that, because we don't know that yet, but looking at the forces that are now raged against him inside the Conservative family, if you like. So first of all, we know that this coming year is going to be a big year on whether or not Scotland has another independence referendum. We know that the SNP is planning to make announcements within weeks, probably very soon. And we also know that virtually every single elected Conservative parliamentarian in Scotland, I'm talking about the Scottish Parliament more than the the British one, 
mm. um, has come out publicly against Johnson. To put it shortly, um, having seen Ruth Davidson in tears as well, uh, Boris Johnson has lost the Scottish Conservative Party. So he can't move really in any direction on that pivotal issue. Then you swivel round and you look at the number of backbenchers who are absolutely furious and very, very worried about the cost of living crisis coming up, what I prefer to pay, call the can't pay my bills crisis. And you look at his very, very strange relationship with his chancellor, Rishi Sunak now. Sunak, who uh, last night pretty publicly rebuked Johnson for his comments about Jimmy Savile and Keir Starmer in a way that I can't remember, you know, uh, a serving chancellor rebuking a serving prime minister before. Rishi Sunak was not particularly supportive of Boris Johnson during the first part of the crisis. Johnson bears a grudge and he'll be looking at Rishi Sunak and thinking, if I survive, that guy's out or down. And Rishi Sunak is clever enough to understand that. And therefore, I conclude that relations between the prime minister and the chancellor are probably at a kind of visceral psychological level, already severed. So he has real problems, Johnson, on the economy. You look at ministers like Liz Truss struggling to kind of get some sort of agreement from the EU on the Northern Ireland protocol problem. And you see that she is also unlikely to get very far so long as the turmoil continues in London. And then you look at what's happening in Northern Ireland itself um, and the resignation of the first minister and the likelihood at the moment that Sinn Féin win that coming uh, Northern Irish election. And on every side, I just don't see any real hope for this prime minister. Um, if he had a very big, strong, utterly uh, loyal, utterly enthusiastic uh, parliamentary party behind him and big, big support, waves of support in the country, then he could probably fight through these big waves coming towards him going back to the, the, the lifeboat metaphor. But, you know, his opinion polling personally is atrocious. The Conservative parties are now on, I guess, on average, looking at all the polling, around 10 points behind Labour. And I just don't see a way forward. I think the waves are getting higher and the air is going out of that lifebelt. Mm. And you run through each of the sort of potential leadership hopefuls. And we talk a lot about Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss. But I found it particularly interesting that you pinpointed Jeremy Hunt, uh, the current Health Select Committee chair, who served as yeah. Health Secretary and Foreign Secretary in the past. Why did he stand out for you as a potential challenger? Well, I was asking myself, first of all, I was reflecting on the fact that the Tories tend to go for the opposite when they get rid of a leader or a leader moves on. So if you run through, uh, there was nobody um, as unlike Margaret Thatcher in the Conservative Party of that day as John Major, you know, and then following John Major, and the, then we go to the Cameron years, and there was nobody as unlike the kind of ebullient, slightly pink, uh, patrician David Cameron than <laughs> Theresa May. There was nobody nearly as unlike Theresa May as Boris Johnson, and so it goes. So I was asking myself, so who is the most un-Boris Johnson person that they could go for? And I thought, well, think about Jeremy Hunt, who I've observed and known for a long time. He bears no grudges. He hasn't got that kind of dark edge. He was beaten by Boris Johnson and kicked out of the cabinet. But he's had a very, very good pandemic as chair of that committee. He was widely credited inside the Conservative Party, at least if not beyond that, for getting the extra money, uh, 12 billion, whatever it was, from Theresa May while he was health secretary. He was generally seen to have done a good job as foreign secretary. So he's somebody who looks out with whom the Russians 
would be pleased to deal, but would be would find quite tough to deal with as well. Mm-hmm. Good foreign experience, had a good pandemic, very, very widely liked inside the Tory party. He's got absolutely no personal enemies there, so far as I know. There's no scandals. There's no problems, as it were, in his background. Indeed, the fact that he's married to a Chinese woman understands China again at this point in our national history. That's pretty useful. And so you look in all directions, and he is the kind of person who could attract an awful lot of support on the centre and the left, frankly, of the Conservative Party. I know that he is going to stand. I'm as sure of that as I can be. And I know that his friends are looking for big allies around the party. Now, he's got a big problem, which is that he he did not vote for Brexit. And he's tried to make his peace about that and said that, oh, if he knew what he was knew now he would have done. And lots of Conservatives won't quite believe him on that. Nevertheless, that's the only really big mark against him. And I wonder who the right are going to put up against him. And I think they have a bigger problem in terms of choosing their candidate. I think in the end, it may well be Liz Truss. um, But she does not yet have the numbers of Conservative backbenchers uh, supporting her that she needs. So there's some way to go there. And there'll be lots of other candidates on the right popping up. Um, you might have David Davis, you might have, uh, well, there are all sorts of characters that you could have. I think Sajid Javid will probably in the end run. And then there is the very big question of Rishi himself. Mm-hmm. And that is the bigger, the biggest single question at the moment. Because a week ago, I was being told he probably would not run, that he felt that his time was not quite yet, and that he was a long-term strategist in terms of his own career and all of that. But his behaviour over the last 48 hours, does suggest pretty strongly he will run. So somehow, Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak have to have a conversation because the two of them standing together would be impossible to beat. Yes, and and you write that Hunt would be the uh, candidate that Labour MPs would fear the most. And I just wonder what you make of how Labour's faring while the Tories are in this crisis. Labour have had a pretty good crisis, I think, and that means Mm. very much that Keir Starmer himself has had a good crisis. I think he has had some, well the best parliamentary performances of his career so far. It's not a very long career, so maybe that's not saying very much. But he has been forensic. He has been angry, visibly angry, but also controlled and kind of respectable in his anger. And that's played very well in the House of Commons. He has shown everybody a very different kind of leadership to that of Boris Johnson. And for the first time, an awful lot of people think, well, that's quite an attractive form of leadership. I see big problems ahead for Labour, however, because the, the the party gate scandal in, in Westminster is being overtaken very, very fast by the looming can't bear our bills scandal we mentioned earlier on. Yes. And I feel that the danger there for Labour is that we go through perhaps a year of arguing mainly about high taxes, about high inflation. Inflation is coming back in a big way. And I look forward, I wonder whether we're going to see a repeat of what happened during John Major's premiership. Interest rates aren't nearly, nearly as high at the moment. But when you when interest rates start to rise very quickly, then the very high levels of household debt in this country and mortgage debt in this country suddenly become another economic crisis for another swathe of, the, of, of homeowners in this case. You look at that, you look at energy bills, and you look at taxes. Now, Labour struggles traditionally to persuade people that if they were elected, they would cut taxes and they would make life easier. I think that Rachel Reeves, as shadow chancellor, has a very interesting and certainly for the time being quite a plausible alternative, which is simply great big um, windfall taxes 
on the energy companies and on the banks. But that mm-hmm. is not a long-term answer to the, to the taxation. The, the truth, I think, as Keir Starmer said in the Commons, is that we have a relatively low productivity and in historic terms still a relatively low growth economy in this country. Uh, we are doing quite well when it comes to employment, which is what Boris Johnson always talks about. But in terms of productivity and wealth creation, we're not doing that well. And that suggests that there is going to be another period, perhaps like the 1960s and the 1950s, when we are paying pretty high levels of tax. And we know that voters, red wall seats or anywhere else, don't like that. And that is a long-term looming issue for Labour. Hello, it's Alva here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. At the moment, you can subscribe from £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman World Review comes France Elects, a special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vok. And over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. Just search World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. And I do want to ask you about the latest developments in Downing Street. I think the fifth aide uh, has resigned yes. this morning. But just one more question on your on your cover story. Mm. When I was reading it, I felt as if if I were a Tory MP reading this piece, I would really feel my conscience pricked because you say it's down to the conscience and guts of Conservative well. MPs to to put their votes of no confidence in. And actually, the concluding line of your piece is, is very punchy. You say it's patriotic, not partisan that it's their job to, to clean this up now. Was that something that was on your mind when you were writing? Sure. Well, the column is addressed to readers of the New Statesman, full stop. But it's also addressed in a way to Conservative MPs because they are, as it were, the swing opinion-changing factor at the moment in this crisis. I am trying very hard, and I think my job as political editor of the New Statesman, I don't want to be a straightforwardly kind of tub-thumping, mm. always pro-Labour voice of a, of a predictable kind. I think it's very important in these crises to accept that all parties have decent people in politics for the right reasons and people who are not in politics for the right reasons. All parties make choices in front of them in power that are going to affect all of us. And it's my job to analyse and try and work out you know, which door is uh, moving where, where, where are the levers, where are the joints, What's the next, where, where is the ball going to bounce next? And at the moment, all eyes ought to be on, as it were, quiet, um, committed, 
um, no doubt quite right wing, but fundamentally decent conservative MPs looking at themselves in the makeup or the shaving mirror every morning and thinking, what is my role in this? Well, let's hope they pick up their copies of the New Statesman this week. I'm sure they will. (laughs) (laughs) Well, lastly, yes, what do you make of the the drama at number 10, um, AIDS sort of fleeing the ship? Well, there is is an element of of people leaving a sinking ship, no doubt about that. Uh, Number 10 are spinning this as, you know, this is the clear out the Prime Minister always promised. This shows that he is getting a grip and he's getting rid of all these people. But these are people that he himself appointed pretty recently and relied on. In the case of Manura Mitza, he's relied upon her for 14 years. Um, he once referred to her as his brain uh, in mm-hmm. terms of policy. She's absolutely central. She has been utterly loyal to him for a very long time, and that's a huge loss. And then when I say number 10 say, yesterday that would have meant Jack Doyle saying, but Jack Doyle has resigned <laughs> as well. You know, it's, it's, it is all, there is a comic aspect to this, I have to say. <laughs> It's very, uh, it's very improper and unfair of me to say so, but it is also quite funny, the sheer number of people leaving the sp- and the speed at which they're leaving. But, you know, uh, Dan Rosenfeld was, was appointed by Johnson to clear things up uh, after the, da- uh, the, the Cummings era. He was supposed to be the voice of calm and sanity, and he has gone too now. So I think, I think it's going to be very, very hard to bring in really good people into Downing Street. I mean, Anush, I don't suppose if the phone rang that you would be very keen to go in and run (laughs) Downing Street, or indeed anybody else would be keen to go and run (laughs) Downing Street just at the moment. Because actually, do you know what? It's not about Munira or Dan or Jack or anyone else. It's about Boris. And of course, you know, Andrew, you've got so much experience in looking politicians in the eye, asking them questions and seeing how they reply and whether or not we can believe them. And how do you feel, you know, Boris Johnson would fare now, you know, with people, with people's trust? That's a very good question, uh, Anush, because in the end, this is about authority and it's about credibility. Without those things, power doesn't really exist in a parliamentary system. And I think if you look at Boris Johnson now and you say, is he the kind of leader who can look, as it were, the rest of us in the eye and say, here is what I believe, here is what I intend to do, and here is what is going to happen, and look back at us with authority, I think that a credibility has gone. You look at his eyes and he looks hunted. He looks like a, a creature hemmed in on all sides. And there is a kind of, there is a grief and a self-doubt there that I haven't seen before. And I think the Conservative Party sees it. And I think there is no coming back from that point. Well, I think that's a good note to end on. Thank you so much for joining us for your first ever New Statesman podcast appearance, Andrew, and I'm sure we'll have you on many times more. Anush, it has been a huge pleasure. Many, many thanks for that. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anush Shekelian, and my soon-to-be colleague, Andrew Ma. We're produced by Adrian Bradley, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. Please leave us a nice review and don't forget to subscribe.